You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope you're having a better week than we are in the City of Angels, as we have been put back into face mask jail just in time for the hot part of the summer. So thanks for that, people who won't get vaccinated. But I digress. This week, for two-sentence movie reviews, for some reason I saw Space Jam A New Legacy. It was the only one showing when I could go see a movie this week. I was like six or seven when the original Space Jam came out. So the originals always had like a sweet nostalgic place in my heart, even though basketball has never really been my sport, but I did love the Looney Tunes. So, you know, 50-50. This movie is not good. It tries to be meta, kind of like the Lego movie did a few years back, but it's meta for meta's sake, which brings absolutely nothing to the storyline, but it does make a pretty good ad for like LeBron James and the Warner Brothers owned IPs. And they really leaned into the uh, Wizard of Oz of it all, which isn't even a thing that their studio made, by the way. MGM made Wizard of Oz. Warner just owns the rights to the movie now. But, you know, that's just splitting hairs. The animation style for the first like two thirds of the movie, which I'm sure is meant to appease the children of today whom all grew up more with computer animation than hand-drawn or 2D, alienates the people who grew up with the original cartoons. The, and and the, it's not really even 3D. It's like a 2D, 3D hybrid, which makes it look both expensive and very cheap at the same time. And at the end of the day, I'm not really sure who this movie is supposed to be for. The jokes are about 10 to 15 years too dated. Like the Matrix is like a major like pop culture reference they keep bringing up. And I mean, that was what, 99? And then there during the basketball game, there was a poor actress dressed up like Baby Jane for some reason. Like children don't know who that is. Honestly, I have seen that movie only a handful of times. If I hadn't just watched it for the episode two weeks ago, I don't even think I would have noticed. Yet here we are. Just skip this movie for your own good. Just just don't even. Oh, God. Anyway, on to this week's topic. This week, we've got a feud between two individuals from very different worlds. A newspaper tycoon and the man willing to risk his entire career to make a film partially based on that tycoon's life. You've heard the name William Randolph Hearst several times in the last year. Now you'll hear a little bit more about his life and one of several feuds he had throughout his lifetime. In fact, at least two came out of the making of the film Citizen Kane alone, which is what we're discussing today. One of them, at least. The one for this week is also fun because it's literally a 77-year-old rich white guy fighting with a 25-year-old untested filmmaker named Orson Welles. And with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I came to see you about this campaign of yours. 
It's in quite a campaign against the public transit company. Mr. Thatcher, do you know anything we could use against them? Still the college boy, aren't you? Oh, no, Mr. Thatcher. I was expelled from college. A lot of colleges. You remember. I remember. Charles, I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes. That you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged, maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would money be too and property. Bad. Oh, William Randolph Hearst. This dude did a whole lot of shit in his 88 years. For this episode, we're only going to focus on the aspects of his life pertaining to why he took so much umbrage with Orson Welles. Willie H. was born in San Francisco, California, to a mining millionaire and his much younger wife on April 29th, 1863. He went to prep school on the East Coast and landed at Harvard as a member of the class of 1885. He didn't graduate, though, as he was expelled for throwing massive parties and sending his professors excrement in pudding pots with their faces stuck into the excrement in the pot. Because he was from a super rich family, William didn't have to try that hard to procure work. In 1887, he took over management from his father of the San Francisco Examiner. The younger Hearst hired all the best journalists of the day to boost the quality of the paper, and not long after, the Examiner was the most popular periodical in the city by the bay. Hearst envisioned running a larger newspaper chain and knew that in order to do so, he would need to get a stronghold in New York. With financial help from his mother, his father had died four years earlier, in 1895, Hearst bought a struggling periodical, the New York Morning Journal, and gave it his personal style of polish. He hired talented journalists and soon found himself in direct competition with Joseph Pulitzer, the owner of New York World. Hearst also poached several of Pulitzer's employees, causing boiling tensions between the two. Hearst was good at making himself seem appealing to work for. He was generous, paid more than his competitors, gave credit to his writers with page one bylines, and was polite, unassuming, mellow, and indulgent of the, quote, prima donnas, eccentrics, bohemians, drunks, or reprobates, so long as they had useful talents. Hearst continued amassing his empire, and he and Pulitzer's journalistic tactics to attract readers became known as yellow journalism. Yellow journalism is the publishing of a story that has little or no legitimate well-researched news, while instead uses eye-catching headlines for increased sales. Basically, it's like tabloid magazine's father's and modern-day internet clickbait's grandfather. Techniques of yellow journalism included exaggerating real events, scandal-mongering, or sensationalizing. Why would they do this? To sell the most papers. This mattered more than the truth to them. 
Hearst also had another leg up. His papers only cost a penny versus Pulitzer's costing three cents. So the mass was by far buying more of Hearst's paper. Pulitzer was eventually forced to also sell his papers for a penny. The war raged between the two until about 1898, as both were actually losing money fighting with each other while the Spanish-American War raged. In addition to his newspaper empire, Hearst also had political ambitions, and to aid in those, he opened further newspapers in other cities, among them Chicago, Los Angeles, and Boston. And he kind of succeeded. Hearst was elected to the New York House of Representatives from 1903 to 1907. Then he tried and failed to run for president in 1904, mayor of New York in 1905 and 1909, and finally governor of New York in 1906. When his political options dried up, Hearst relocated to California, where he openly lived and socialized with his mistress, actress Marion Davies, despite having a wife and five children. Beginning in 1919, Hearst began to build Hearst Castle, a project that was not completed in his lifetime, on his ranch in San Simeon, California. He furnished that mansion with art, antiques, and entire historic rooms purchased and bought from the great houses of Europe. He established an Arabian horse breeding operation on the grounds for good measure. By the mid-1920s, Hearst had a nationwide string of 28 newspapers. 1928 was the most successful year on record for Hearst's empire. He had power, influence, and if you've listened to some of the other episodes on here, it was also sketchy as hell. But like many other ultra-rich dudes, the stock market crash of 1929 changed that. Like so many others, Hearst had overextended his wealth, and he lost control over his holdings in the crash. Hearst's newly developed conservative political leanings also became a problem as they increasingly put him at odds with those of his readers, as his papers were mainly liberal-leaning, which worsened matters even more for the once great media chain. The Hearst Empire was not allowed to sell further bonds to investors, which might help them, you know, gain some quick cash. And it looked like the newspaper empire might actually collapse. The Hearst Corporation faced a court-mandated reorganization in 1937. Hearst then became an employee of his own organization. The papers would not turn profits again until World War II. George Orson Welles was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin on May 6, 1915. Orson was born into a pretty affluent home. His father was the inventor of a popular bicycle lamp. His parents would divorce when he was young. His father became an alcoholic, and his mother, a professional pianist, would lecture at the Art Institute of Chicago, where she and young Orson moved after her split to make money for the two of them. She would pass away when Orson was just nine. While his mother was alive, Orson had pursued a career in music, but this ended with her death. Life with his father was quite unstable, as he had to travel with him. Orson also alternated between boarding and public schools. His father died of heart and kidney failure when Orson was just 15. Orson was soon accepted into Harvard, but opted to travel instead. While in Dublin, Ireland, Orson lied and said he was an American theater veteran and a local theater owner, not believing him but impressed with the brashness of this young man, 
gave him an audition. Orson made his stage debut in 1931 at the age of 16. He tried to move to London to continue working on the stage, but when he failed to obtain a work permit, he had to return to Chicago. Orson performed on stage in repertory in Chicago and landed his first radio gig there in 1934. Orson also appeared in about 14 plays between 1934 to 1939 in New York. He was a member of the Federal Theater Project for two years, which was a part of the New Deal following the Depression that provided funds to allow theater professionals to go back to work. This allowed Orson to employ fellow artists for his productions. In addition to acting, he was also developing other skills, including directing. Breaking with the Federal Theater Project in 1937, Orson formed his own repertory theater. Throughout all of this, he also continued working in radio. The famed War of the Worlds radio production, where he allegedly tricked people into thinking aliens were invading, occurred on Halloween in 1938, though the hysteria that is said to have followed has been widely debunked. In 1939, RKO Pictures reached out to Orson with a contract that is generally considered the greatest contract offered to a filmmaker in Hollywood history, and Orson wasn't even a filmmaker yet. His contract would allow him to write, produce, direct, and perform in two motion pictures for RKO. The contract subordinated the studio's financial interests to Orson's creative control and broke all president by granting him the right of final cut. This was unheard of at this time. Orson signed that 63-page contract on August 21st, 1939. He was on his way to Hollywood. One thing RKO did have the right to was to deny the project Orson got to make, and they denied his first two film proposals. But they did agree to the third. The film was conceived with, and eventually penned by, Hollywood legend in a downward spiral, Herman J. Mankiewicz. The film was called Citizen Kane, and was allegedly, loosely based on the life of a former acquaintance of Manx, one William Randolph Hearst. You're making a bigger fool of yourself than I thought you would, Mr. Kane. I've got nothing to talk to you about. You licked. Why don't Get you? Get out. If you want to see me, have the warden write me a letter. If anybody else that would say what's going to happen to you, it would be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. You're going to get more than one lesson. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked politician trying to save himself from the consequences of his crimes! Gettys! I'm going to send you to Sig Sig! Sig Sig, Gettys! A general rule of thumb, if you're famous or hoping to one day become famous, don't piss off the people whom have seen you at your worst. Herman Mankiewicz, known by his friends as Mank, had been a member of Hearst's social circle, but was exiled after one too many drunken shenanigans. Combined with his life experience and 300 pages of notes from Orson Welles, Mank wrote the first draft of the script for Citizen Kane, but was hired as a script doctor, not a screenwriter, so his input was widely downplayed at the time. Orson wrote another version after this, and the final script was a combination of the two. There's way more stuff that happened involving the writing of the script. There's literally a whole movie about it, but this is all you really need to know about it for this week. In a movie out of Hearst's own playbook, Orson hired all the best people in town he could get to make this film. This film was going to be one of epic proportions. The plot of Citizen Kane, widely considered by film historians to be the best film ever made, for those of you who haven't seen it, 
is thus. On his palatial Florida estate, Xanadu, wealthy newspaper publisher Charles Foster Kane, played by Orson Welles himself, dies. His final word, Rosebud, confounds the public at large. A journalist, determined to discover the meaning of the tycoon's last word, tracks down and interviews those whom were, quote-unquote, closest to him during his life. The journalist uncovers Kane's rise from a young boy in a boarding house, whom becomes a mining tycoon, then a newspaper tycoon, during which time he manipulates public opinion on the Spanish-American War. He runs for governor of New York, during which time he begins an affair with a young singer while still married to his wife, whom just so happened to be the niece of the president of the United States. When the affair is made public, Kane's political ambitions are destroyed. Then he loses almost everything in the stock market crash of 1929. Kane divorces his wife and marries his former mistress, Susan, and forces her into a humiliating operatic career, which includes an opera house he builds for her, for which she has neither the talent nor the ambition. A member of his newspaper staff is fired after trying to write a negative review of Kane's wife's performance in his own newspaper. Susan eventually leaves him in a spectacular fashion, destroying nearly everything in her bedroom except for a snow globe, which Kane was holding when he died. Ultimately, the journalist is unable to definitively discover the identity of Rosebud. Back at Xanadu, Kane's belongings are cataloged and discarded by the staff. They find the sled on which the eight-year-old Kane was playing on the day that he was taken from his home at the boarding house in Colorado. The sled is thrown in with other junk into the furnace, and as it burns, the camera reveals its trade name, not noticed by the staff. Rosebud. Any of that sound familiar? Now keep in mind, before we go any further, Orson Welles never actually officially stated whom the Charles Foster King character was based on. Is Hearst probably an inspiration? Absolutely, but so was Joseph Pulitzer. But that didn't stop Hearst from doing what he did next. That's the way they want it. The people have made that choice. It's obvious the people prefer Jim Geddes to me. You talk about the people as though you own them. So they belong to you. Goodness. As long as I can remember, you've talked about giving the people their rights, as if you could make them a present of liberty, as a reward for services rendered. Jed. Remember the working man? I'll get drunk too, Jedediah. It'll do any good. I won't do any good. Besides, you never get drunk. You used to write an awful lot about the working man. Oh, go on He's home. turning into something called organized labor. You're not going to like that one little bit when you find out it means that your working man expects something as his right, not as your gift, Charlie. When your precious, underprivileged really get together, oh boy, that's going to add up to something bigger than your privilege, and I don't know what you'll do. Sail away to a desert island, probably, and lord it over the monkeys. I wouldn't worry about it too much, Jed. There'll probably be a few of them there to let me know when I do something wrong. Mm. You may not always be so lucky. You're not very drunk. Drunk? What do you care? You don't care about anything except you. You just want to persuade people that you love them so much that they ought to love you back. Only you want love on your own terms. Something to be played your way according to your rules. 
I feel like we've covered so much in the last almost year, but there are so many other major Hollywood players that haven't even been mentioned by name yet. One such individual is Hedda Hopper, an actress turned iconic gossip columnist whose tenacity and ability to dig up dirt on her former colleagues is also partially responsible for how tabloids operate today. Well, Hedda, always one to get a scoop, saw an early screening of Citizen Kane on January 3rd, 1941. If smartphones had existed at that time, Hedda's would have imploded from how fast she would have been typing on it. As soon as she got out of that screening, she gabbed to Hearst and his associates about the parallels between Charles Foster Kane and himself. Hedda's rival and Hearst's chief movie columnist, Luella Parsons, saw the film shortly after and agreed with Hedda. The organization had already been investigating the film for weeks, and now they had two eyewitnesses to the sacrilege this wunderkind had made. Even more loathsome to Hearst and his associates was the portrayal of Kane's second wife, a young alcoholic singer with strong parallels to Marion Davies. Hearst was said to have reacted to this aspect of the film more strongly than any other, and Orson himself later called the Davies-based character a, quote, dirty trick that he expected would provoke the mogul's anger. Well, if that's the case, then Orson got more than what he wanted. On January 8th, 1941, William Randolph Hearst banned any and all of his papers from running ads or even mentioning the film Citizen Kane. He then proceeded to declare war not just against RKO, but the entire Hollywood studio system. Dude was pissed. And not only that, he was rich old guy pissed. So yeah, he threw a fit like a two-year-old. For example, Hearst publicly condemned the number of immigrants and refugees working in the film industry instead of Americans, as subtle as a heart attack reference to the many Jewish members of the Hollywood establishment at that time. Hearst newspapers also went after Wells, accusing him of being a communist sympathizer and questioning his patriotism. Keep in mind, this was a few years before the HUAC trials, so the accusations didn't carry the weight they would have after World War II. Not that it matters, but none of the things they were saying about Orson was true. This was just more of Hearst's yellow journalism, dialed up to 11. Wells's lawyer-manager, Arnold Weisberger, warned his client in a memo that Hearst and his minions would stop at nothing. Quote, This is not a tempest in a teapot. It will not calm down, and the forces opposed to us are constantly at work. He later told Orson that Hearst may, quote, decide to use all his legal machinery to harass RKO. Records show that Orson believed that Hearst was not linked to the attacks on him and Citizen Kane, but that his minions wanted, quote, to show the boss that they were on the ball. On a lecture tour before Citizen Kane's release, Orson was warned by a police investigator one night, quote, don't go back to your hotel. They've got a 14-year-old girl in the closet and two photographers waiting for you to come in. But still, the director at the time blamed a, quote, hatchet man from a local Hearst newspaper. This wasn't Hearst. This was just people acting in his name. For a long time, history believed this as well, until author Harlan Lebo, whom served as a historical consultant for the 50th anniversary of Kane's release for Paramount, uncovered a ton of memos stating otherwise. Hearst knew exactly what his lackeys were up to. Now, on the other side, a lot of powerful people in Hollywood didn't really care for Orson. He was this hotshot wounder kid from Chicago or New York or wherever, and RKO just gives him a golden ticket into their kingdom, and now he's stirring up trouble for all of them. They noped all of this pretty hard, and most of them actually sided with Hearst. 
Louis B. Mayer of MGM even offered to pay RKO $842,000 in cash, which is about $16 million today, if the studio's president, George Schaefer, would destroy the negative and all prints of Citizen Kane. Kind of makes you wonder what her said on Mayer, doesn't it? Despite all of this, Schaefer stood by Orson and Citizen Kane and not only refused Mayer's money, but in retaliation threatened to sue the Fox, Paramount, and Lowe's theater chains for conspiracy after they refused to distribute the film. After Time and other publications protested, the theater chains relented slightly and permitted a few showings. In the end, the film barely broke even. Citizen Kane would be nominated for seven Oscars, only winning one Best Screenplay, which was shared between Mink and Orson. Not everyone was happy about this, and the film and Orson were booed during the ceremony. Schaefer was later pushed out at RKO, and Wells followed not long after, and the film was locked deep within the studio archives for years. In fact, it would be 25 years before Citizen Kane received its rightful share of attention and has since been heralded as one of the best movies of all time. With the film being released and everything that happened, neither Orson nor Hearst's reputations ever fully recovered from the scandal. Hearst spent his later years in San Simeon collecting art, a vast amount of which he donated to the L.A. County Museum of Art, until health reasons forced him to move closer to the city where the doctors are. He died in Beverly Hills on August 14, 1951, at the age of 88. He was interned in the Hearst family mausoleum at the Cypress Lawn Cemetery in Colma, California, which his parents had established. While Orson Welles' tenure at Arkea was a short one, his career was in fact quite long. Orson would alternate between film and television work throughout the 40s and served as a goodwill ambassador during World War II. It feels a little sacrilegious to leave all of his career out, but we just don't have time to mention everything he made in his ensuing 50-year career, and the thing pertaining to this feud only happened at the very beginning of his career. Orson directed over 60 projects, several of which were finished after his death. The most recent release was 2020, 35 years after he died. Orson passed away on October 10, 1985, at the age of 70. He had recorded his final interview just the evening before. He returned to his house in Hollywood and worked into the early hours, typing stage directions for a project he and a partner were planning to shoot at UCLA the following day. Wells died sometime in the morning of October 10th of a heart attack. He wasn't found until his chauffeur arrived around 10 a.m. His remains were cremated and were eventually buried in Ronda, Spain, on the estate of his bullfighter friend, Antonio Ordenez. He is buried next to his third wife, Palomori, under a bed of flowers. If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything. No, I don't think so. No. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. And that is going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I am an independent podcast, so I'm relying on you, my listeners, to get the word on this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a humongous help. 
In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the feud between Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando, whom at the height of their careers commenced a battle royale on the set of Guys and Dolls. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.